Good morning. It's good to be with you all today. I was struck, even as we were singing this morning, of looking out, um, just the, the goodness of knowing most people here. I don't know everyone, but I was telling Albert before the service, I used to um, preach on the, what was called the circuit my last year of seminary, and I would go to these little churches where I didn't know a soul, so I was just up here talking but didn't have relationship, and there truly is something different about um, preaching to people that you know, to fa family members, and it, it's a good thing. And so my, you know, my prayer would be, because there is relationship, if I misspeak, that you will talk to me about that. If there's something confusing, that you would feel free to come ask for further clarif clarification. So I'd like to begin today with a story that I wrote a number of years ago. It's a story of three kings, and I'm going to invite the children to try to figure out who I'm talking about and let your parents know. This is the story of the king before, the king after, and the king between. The king before was the people's champion. A man of striking first impressions, he looked the part of a leader. He was a powerful man standing taller than all other men of the nation. And the king before was handsome in appearance. To look at him was to trust him. He inspired confidence in the people as he made them like the other nations. No one looked down upon them anymore. For all of his charisma and charm, he was not truly interested in God. It was the title of king and the power that went with it that mattered most to the king before. That's not to say he couldn't act the part of God's man when he needed to, but it was never out of devotion or love for God. Rather, he treated God as a means to a particular end. A man with few convictions, but plenty of ambitions, the king before ever preferred his will to God's will. Never was this more clear than when he thought he knew better than God what was needed for the kingdom. A halfway obedience led to half-hearted repentance, as the king before was quick to seek out the applause of the people, while then blaming them for his disobedience and failures. The king before enjoyed the perks of power while avoiding the responsibility that goes with it, and so rejected God and ignored his word. Now the king after was incredibly wise. When given the opportunity to ask God for anything, he requested wisdom that he might rule the people well. And God did not stop there. He was pleased to bless the king with what he did not ask for, riches, power, and honor beyond compare. Gifted as a writer, a naturalist, a judge, and a scholar, he was more knowledgeable than all others in the entire land. His words of wisdom recorded in the holy book to bless future generations. Under his leadership, the nation expanded its reach and grew impossibly wealthy, and none became more wealthy than the king. He loved the Lord, but he had other loves as well. Sinful passions in which he would boast and find his identity. Idols to which he gave the power to destroy his kingship. The king after started well and chose wisely, but his reign was marked by a steady pattern of making poor choices, cultivating other loves, and choosing to feed other appetites rather than growing a relationship with his God. The trappings of kingship were a powerful distraction. Wealth, power, influence led him towards halfway worship and a divided heart. His great wisdom, outside of a relationship with his God, became foolishness 
as he married foreign wives, worshipped foreign gods, and shared only a part of his heart with his God. But the king between, the king between was a man after God's own heart, a warrior poet, a dancer, fighter, and ruler. From his youth, he exhibited a joyful exuberance, a fearless confidence that God was present and at work. Anointed as king when a boy, he demonstrated patient faithfulness for 20 years before he ascended to the throne. In that time, he trusted and rested in his God's providence. Whether fighting lions, giants, or the enemies of God's people, he fought with God's favor, ever confident that God would win the fight. The, the king between had a God-dominated imagination. Where others saw obstacles or impossibilities, he saw an opportunity for God to bring glory to himself. When he did finally ascend to the throne, he did so as a witness to the truth that God was king. He used his throne as a pulpit to proclaim the sovereignty of God. The king between never hesitated to ask God for what he needed, and his life was marked by unending praise of God. But he was also acquainted with sin and grief, abandonment, and sorrow. He knew the debilitating power of unconfessed sin, and for the king between, nothing was to be feared more than the absence of God. In his sin, he abused his power, he destroyed a family, and then murdered a man to cover it up. But when confronted with his sin, the king between fully owned and fully repented of his acts and fell on the mercy of his God. For the king between, his story is a gospel story, a story of God doing for him what he could not do for himself a life characterized by God's grace, mercy, judgment, and love, an abiding relationship with his God. Now, we will return to the three kings a little bit later, but first, our passage for today is Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. It reads, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts Boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the good gift of your word, for the truth that it reveals about who you are and the truths that it reveals about each of us. Father, help me to not worry about what people think of me, but about what they will think of you. Father, take my imperfect words and perfect them. May your spirit take these words and make them effective in the hearts of all who have ears to hear. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This week marks the beginning of year 18 for me at Covenant College. It's pretty crazy. My very first year, I have a very salient memory of meeting with, with an older woman who had attended Covenant in the 60s and remained connected with, with the college and with students in the, or in the following decades. And she told me something that has stuck with me um, over all this time. She told me that Covenant strives to produce critical thinkers, but sometimes simply produces critical people. And I've reflected on that over the years and weighed it against my own observations, and I believe there's, there's truth. And not, not just at Covenant College, I think in Christian environments that this can be really true. There's inherent dangers in the church that I want us to be aware of, 
to consider as we examine ourselves. And, and that's the danger of mistaking knowing about God for knowing God. That is substituting information about God for a relationship with him. Or to, or to put it another way, caring more about information than formation. The distinction may not seem an important one at first glance, for both are certainly good and important. I'm deeply appreciative of the strong biblical and theological foundations of our denomination, our commitments as a church. I believe they're right and worthy. This, this isn't an anti-intellectual sermon or rant of any kind. We need to be in our Bibles where God reveals himself to us. It is good to study theology, but good theology ought always lead to a fervent doxology. It has to travel from our head to our hearts. I believe a well-trained mind is only truly effective for the kingdom if it's joined to a Christ-loving, Christ-enjoying, Christ-exalting heart. And I believe that knowledge about God without a relationship with God will not only move us from being critical thinkers to critical people, but even more importantly, it may leave us in total despair when our lives don't go as we plan them to go. I believe Jeremiah speaks to this, certainly in these verses, but in the book itself. We need to remember the context into which Jeremiah is writing. He, he's writing at a time about six to 700 years before Jesus. And he's recognized here, and we can tell this from the chapters earlier, and even earlier here in chapter nine, it's clear that God's people have rejected him. Verse three tells us that they do not know him. Instead, they reject an intimate relationship with God and choose to trust in themselves. And it's into this condition, into this situation, that Jeremiah warns them. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Now, boasting in ourselves is our natural inclination. We're, we're born into this. We're naturally self-focused. We're on this continual quest to be memorable to be known and to be seen. Our culture encourages us to see ourselves as the center of the universe and to convince others of the same. We live in a time and a place where boasting is even encouraged. Maybe, maybe it's the humble brag, maybe it's just what we choose to post, but again, a boast is never just a boast. A boast is an attempt to establish my identity. A boast is an attempt to establish my value and my worth and my performance as I compare myself to others. Boasting can be an insidious act of faithlessness. We're not simply boasting, but rooting our identity in the object of our boast, caring more about created things than the creator, loving the gifts more than the giver. The three boasts mentioned here in verse 23, wisdom, might, and riches, or for those more literally-minded, brains, bodies, and bucks. These are worth unpacking a little bit more. In all times and places, when Christians have turned from God to something else, these are the things that they turn to. Riches or possessions, might, power, physical prowess, status, and wisdom or intelligence. Again, not not bad things in and of themselves, but a closer look can reveal the power they wield over us. These three sources of self-confidence are wholly inadequate in themselves. 
not a foundation on which you can build your significance. They all have an expiration date. They're all finite. Paul tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil because riches improperly valued can absolutely be destructive. When we boast in our wealth, we end up ignoring the one who provides when we elevate riches to the throne of our heart. We end up ignoring the one who provides. They become the false god that enslaves us, always wanting more or at least more than others. The Puritans said that there are two problems with riches. They either can leave us while we live and they, they must leave us when we die. They are not lasting. Power, might, influence can be a dangerous god when we boast in it to the exclusion of a relationship with the one who is all-powerful. Our power trips can look different. For some of us here, it's the overwhelming desire to be respected, to be viewed as a leader, to be considered the best, to be admired for how good I am at something. For others, it can be a preoccupation with our bodies, with our appearance, or it can take the power or it can take the form of power through codependency, manipulating others through withholding affection, or simply loving so much the power of being needed. And wisdom and knowledge, for its own sake, we're warned in Scripture, can and does puff us up, make us judgmental. Each of these can lead us to boasting and building an identity on shifting sand, which serves to separate us from God and cause distress and continual anxiety in our hearts. David Foster Wallace, uh, a non-believer, an author uh, who would eventually take his own life, wrote these words. If you worship money and things, if they are where you seek real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will, you'll, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Here's a man who didn't know Christ who could see very clearly the ultimate impotence of these boasts that we find ourselves finding our identity in. National data every year continues to confirm that we are an increasingly anxious and depressed society. So what in the world is going on? I believe these verses from Jeremiah provide some clue as to what is at the root in a self-centered, performance-based worldview, you are what you do. And it's, it's crushing us. There's a huge difference between saying, I failed, and saying, I am a failure. Can you hear the difference in that? One speaks to something I did or didn't do or didn't do particularly well. The other is who I am. One's much easier to recover from. When these things are our identity, am I smart enough? Am I fitting in? Do I have enough? Am I doing enough? 
Does anyone like me? If my performance, my purchases, my power are the source of my identity, then it's all up to me to achieve, and that's provoking in me an anxiety that's eating me alive. My boast shows where my trust is. My boast reveals where I find my identity. To all this, though, Jeremiah provides an answer. In verse 24, don't boast in these things. If you're going to boast, boast in this, that you understand and know me. We see clearly here the command that where we need to find our identity is in knowing God, in an intimate, ongoing, growing relationship with the living God. We need to move from boasting in stuff and status to boasting in knowing God, and it's not an easy move to make. We've trained ourselves to learn to rest and trust in our performance rather than in a personal relationship with the Lord, who transforms us over time to care more about formation than about information. It's counter to our heart's inclination. It's counter to all the pressures and examples around us. We want to boast in ourselves to trust in what we have and what we can do rather than boasting in a life-transforming relationship that comes through knowing God. So what does this really mean? What does it mean to know God, and how can we know him? As I said, knowing God is about a relationship. The root word is the same word as the knowledge a husband and wife have of each other. There's an intimacy, a depth that comes from knowing and being known. There's a trust that allows us to move from self-centered to self-forgetting. To move from information to transformation is only possible through the work of Jesus Christ and knowing him more and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this, this knowing grows as we spend more time with our Lord in word and in prayer. We experience this deepening of the relationship, a growing trust. It's then that we can begin to boast that we know the Lord. Dennis has been preaching this summer on contentment, and I was thinking about what we boast in actually shows whether we're contented or not. When we're truly content, we can drop our normal script of boasting in our accomplishments. When we're discontent, we have an insecurity. We find ourselves boasting in what we've done and what our kids have done, what we make and what we do. And believe me, when I say that our non-Christian friends as well as our Christian friends are are watching and listening, our children are watching and listening what we're boasting in. We are modeling for them. But if we can, like I said, drop that script of boasting about stuff and knowledge and our might, we we can stop boasting about our accomplishments and truly share with our friends and our neighbors, our family, our children's, our children about what the Lord is doing in us and through us. J.I. Packer writes, knowing about him, that is God, is a necessary precondition of trusting in him. But the width of our knowledge is no gauge of the depth of our knowledge of him. We can have a very wide, shallow knowledge, but we're called to this deeper knowledge. So there's a difference between having knowledge about something and having intimate experience with drastically different. About 22 and a half years ago, Kelly was probably seven months pregnant with Kobe, and I'd gone to the childbirth classes 
and learn things there. And then she asked me to go to the class on breastfeeding. I didn't really know why I needed to go to that. But she assured me there'd be other husbands there, other fathers there. And when I say she invited me to go, I mean, it meant I, I had to, I, I went. <laughs> and out of 75 people there, I was the only man. <laughs> and because we got there a little late, we were in the front row, and I ended up being um, the representative of the entire male gender <laughs> in answering the instructor's questions. But, you know, the, over the course of two hours, we did learn a lot. We gained knowledge about breastfeeding and felt like we had a pretty good handle on it. So a couple months later, Kobe is born. It is, it is a bit of a, uh, a traumatic situation. We ended up staying a couple nights because of that, and Kobe, or Kelly got a late start um, on attempting to breastfeed Kobe. I'm going to use the word breast a lot, so I apologize in advance. We were struggling late one night, and this angel um, with incredibly long fingernails comes in and, and helps us. And what you're trying to achieve with breastfeeding is called latch and helps us finally achieve latch. And Kobe, Kobe eats. And then um, the next night, we have the same, same issue, and she comes in and helps us. But day three, we leave the hospital, and it's me, and it's Kelly, and it's Kobe, and, and it's Kelly's mom who's arrived from Romania. And I'll never forget this. Um, we can't get him to latch. And he's screaming and crying, and we're struggling, and we're praying, and we're frustrated with each other. And, and so it, we, we're, we're, up, we're up in this, this room where he is, and Kelly's on the bed. And in the worst sort of biological Ikea moment, we, I'm holding Kobe's head. <laughs> Kelly's mom is opening Kobe's mouth. <laughs> and Kelly, Kelly's guiding her breast to get, and, and we achieve latch. And it was like this exciting moment, but it took three people to accomplish something that's been going on for millennia. <laughs> and I share that to say sometimes knowledge about just isn't enough. <laughs> knowledge of, intimate knowledge of, it's battle-tested, it's hard-won but it also provides opportunity to share with others who may have the same struggle, the same challenges. Intimate awareness of God allows us to trust in him when things don't work out. When we only know about God, things are fine until they're not. We believe that if we do all the right things, learn all the right truths, then life's going to be just fine. But then it isn't. We experience failure, we experience loss and deep discouragement. And we have this faith crisis where we wonder, has God abandoned me? Our knowledge about him hasn't prepared us. We believe we must have done something wrong to deserve this from God. But it's when we study our disappointments that we see where our identity really is. Knowledge about God is necessary for belief. But a relationship with God, it's what will give us peace when we experience soul-crushing loss. For though we may not know why it's happened, we know through having a living relationship with him that what happened wasn't due to him not loving us. We know that can't be true because of what he sacrificed. 
because of what Christ did for us. We trust him due to time spent building a relationship with him, as we will see in a moment when we return to David. Somewhere along the way, in some circles, we decided that knowing things about God equals maturity in Christ. We've begun to think that gaining more information is the same thing as growing. Again, I'm not anti-knowledge. I want to make that clear. I'm just trying to distinguish. If we reduce knowing God to knowing things about God, we're going to find ourselves producing disciples that look like demons who have perfect knowledge of God but no interest in trusting and loving him. Finding our identity in what we know or what we do or how other thinks of us will eat us alive. When our answer is try harder, learn more, get more, do better, we become exhausted and anxious and susceptible to enthroning false gods who will own us and enslave us and ultimately always fail us. Finite things cannot bear the weight of worship. The only answer, our only boast, is in knowing God. I shared the story of the three kings at the beginning because I think the lives of Saul, Solomon, and David are so instructive for us. Saul as king had power, but he defined himself by that power. Saul found his identity and his role as king and did all he could to be seen as successful, being swayed by the people and then blaming them for his failures so that he could hold on to the crown. And it all crashed down upon him as the power was taken from him and he died in dishonor. Solomon could boast in having wisdom, power, riches as much as anyone has ever had. He began his reign well with a wise choice, but wisdom, his wisdom, ultimately became foolishness. Life in Christ is about the choices we make every step of the way, not just at the beginning. He chose not to know God better, not to follow him, and instead chased after foreign gods, and his heart withered through years of compromise. The former president of the Navigators, Jim Downing, was once asked, why do Christian leaders fail? And he said that they learned the secret of being fruitful without being pure. The Lord may be slow to remove his hand of blessing from a leader, but the reality is when you've learned the secret of being fruitful without being pure, you're a, you're a hollowed out tree with signs of life on the outside, but a dead trunk. And when a storm comes, it will blow you over. Neither Saul the king before nor Solomon the king after prioritized knowing God, having a relationship, speaking to him, listening to him. But David, David the king between, had deep roots. Single biggest characteristic of David is that he knew his God. He believed, he thought about, he prayed, he sang, he delighted in his God. We talk about the difference between knowing about and knowing. The distinction is clear. Saul and Solomon knew about God, but David actually knew his God. For him, his God was personal and present. How can we know God in this way? Again, David's life is instructive. I've shared this before, but I, I just think it's powerful. When David comes to the battlefield, he comes over the crest into the valley of Elah, he sees the same exact things that every other soldier in the army of the Lord sees a giant, where everybody else cowers in fear because they're seeing Goliath in the perspective of themselves. David saw Goliath 
in light of who his God was. He's trained this in himself. It didn't just happen. David had spent years in the pasture, in the fields, in solitude and silence, talking to his God, listening to his voice. So that when he was on the battlefield, when he was in the chaos, he could still hear his God's voice. He'd learned to love and trust God so that when he faced a giant, he could still see, hear, and trust fully. What made David the man after God's own heart was not that he was perfect, not that he was without sin. We know that's not the case. In fact, his sin was detestable. What made him the man after God's own heart was that he knew God and was submissive to the word of God. Unlike Solomon, David's worship was undivided. Unlike Saul, David's repentance was without excuse. He could fully repent, for he knew his God and knew that his God delighted in him and would forgive him. Now, to quote Dennis, if you're looking for a Bible study, I didn't call it the Bible study. I would just say, here, here's a devotional. Here's a, hey, for you high schoolers who are going and you're spending three hours every day, I invite all of you to read Psalm 27 this week. Read Psalm 27 and note how David knows his God. Note the relationship David has, how he talks to his God, how he prays and what he prays for. I'd also encourage you, since you have three hours, to read Psalm 18. A go-to verse for me over the years has been Psalm 18, verse 19. When I begin to struggle with who I am, when I doubt God's love, when I want to justify myself to be known for what I can do, when my heart yearns for identity and things rather than in knowing God, David simply and profoundly says this, he rescued me because he delighted in me. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Not for what I've done, not for what I know, not for what I have, not for how I compare to anybody else, simply for who I am in Christ. The question is, why, why can't this be enough? Why is it enough that he died for me, that he rescued me, that he delights in me? Often it quite simply is because we don't know him and trust him. We really struggle to believe that that's true. To know him is to make him the center of my life, to trust him, to trust that he's done what he said he would do, that he's going to do what he promised to do. That is to be our boast. Now the last part of Jeremiah 9.24 ends with this. I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. To know him is to understand and trust these things about him. What's fascinating is that these three characteristics of our God, his steadfast love, his justice, his righteousness, are the three attributes of the Lord that are revealed when he makes a covenant. David knew this. At the heart of God's covenant is God's desire to have a relationship with his chosen people, to be known by him. I loved um, reading this song. It just, it struck me, the first verse, before the throne of God above. He ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. 
We desperately want to be known. He knows us. He knows our name graven in his heart. It's an amazing truth. Listen to how Jeremiah goes on to speak of this very certain truth later in chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. Now the big takeaway. We've already seen how Solomon and Saul had knowledge about God, that David knew him. There's another famous Saul who had exceptional knowledge about God. But it was not until he encountered Jesus that he truly knew God, began to trust in him and build a relationship. Paul went from boasting in his status, his knowledge, his pedigree, to boasting in the cross. He went from persecuting Christians to being persecuted for Christ. He began living his life downward, forgetting himself and exalting his Lord. And nowhere was this more clearly expressed than in his letter to the Philippians when he wrote, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Or to put it more simply, as he did at the beginning of that letter to the Philippians, to live as Christ, to die as gain. The pastor, Alistair Begg, has an illustration. He says, take that phrase, to live as Christ, to die as gain, and substitute any other words in the blank to live is blank, to die is blank. Anything other than Christ. Let's take our three boasts. To live is wisdom. To die is to live is riches. To live is might. To die is the reality is we lose it all if that's our boast place anything else there, boast in anything else but Christ, live for anything else, to die is to lose it, to reveal its insufficiency in life and in death, the call to find our identity in that which is lasting. And that's in Christ, in his death and resurrection, in knowing God. We'll have a chance here soon to celebrate and strengthen this relationship as we enjoy the Lord's Supper together. Knowing about God is important. Scripture speaks of knowing God as something beyond a mere intellectual ex exercise. Follow the pattern of David and Paul. Study his word. It's how we listen to him. Seek him out. Talk to him. Talk, talk to him with other people. Boast about what he has done in and through you. Ask him the hard questions. Take your fear and your doubt to him. Repent in full confidence that he knows and love you, loves you. 
Knowing God centers on Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, the one who perfectly kept the law and fulfilled the new covenant to bring us into this relationship with God. As we do know him, as we find him to be true and all-sufficient, we'll be able to join with David in saying, he rescued me because he delighted in me. May this be our only boast, that I know God and he knows and delights in me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths. May we be a people who know you, who have a deep understanding, and are continually growing in our relationship with you, that we may trust and know you with more certainty each day of your delight in us. That we may find our identity in this truest of truths, that we can face life's disappointments with confidence, and boast, Father, we want to be able to boast with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. May this be true of us, we pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.